the search for identity, that which uh, suits best to this uh, real self that you're discovering. If you know yourself well enough, then you discover what you are best suited for, and then that is what makes you happiest, too. Self-actualization uh, means the making real of the inner self, and that means what you love, what you're interested in, what excites you, what fascinates you, and that is the cause outside yourself, which paradoxically then becomes a defining characteristic of the self. Welcome to the Maslow Peak Podcast, presented by Spring State Media Group. I'm your host, Brett Griffin, and our guest today is Sean Salimi, community builder and social innovator with Burners Without Borders. Sean and I went to college together, did a ton of snowboarding together, almost drove off a mountain together, and have generally had some great times. Sean's led a very interesting life, traveling the world, writing, and connecting people. Um, he's got a huge heart, and I'm very interested to hear about what he's doing now, which is a brand new venture for him, and I think you guys are going to be interested too. Sean can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Salemi, S-H-A-W-N-S-A-L-E-M-E. Sean, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. So in the production notes, you noted yourself, as I mentioned, as community builder and social innovator. So the first question is always, what does a community builder and social innovator do? Well, uh, the terms are uh, kind of can conjure up a lot of uh, definitions, but um, basically I'd say... It would be facilitating, bringing people together, bridging people together, and social innovation refers to facilitating really new uh, new models to bring help to people. That that manifests in a lot of ways, and basically, in today's world, with the amount of data we have and the amount of learnings we've had as far as social work goes and humanitarian work goes, we can really be smart and strategic in moving forward with uh, solving problems. So that's kind of what social innovation refers to. Okay, so society's problems, are we talking about homelessness? Are we talking about hunger? Are we talking about poverty? Uh, all of the above? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, really, it can, it can fit into any, any context, uh, the environment, poverty, uh, human rights, um, disaster relief, a lot of issues uh, where new approaches can be uh, experimented with, similar to sort of a startup model to just bring prototypes, fail fast, take learnings, and relaunch. That's a great way to put that, fail fast and take learnings. That's a, that's a good way to sum that up. Okay, so the organization Burners Without Borders, I've been to the website, burnerswithoutborders.org. Um, looks like it was put together by some folks that are heavily involved in Burning Man. Tell us a little bit about Burners Without Borders and kind of what your role is day to day. So Burners Without Borders started as a response to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And basically, <clears throat> Burners Without Borders is comprised of the Burning Man community. While Burning Man, the event which for those who don't know is a large human gathering that happens in the Northern Nevada desert every year and brings about 70,000 people together. In 2005, when the event was happening, the disaster in, in New Orleans, 
uh, Hurricane Katrina happened. Well, it inspired a lot of emotion and people that were attending the event had lost their homes. And basically a large group of burners, as we are, as we call ourselves, those who attend Burning Man, migrated over to the disaster relief area after Burning Man, or some had left actually during the burn as well. And for the following eight months had um, brought about over a million dollars worth of disaster relief work to, uh, to communities that were being underserved by FEMA and by other organizations in the area. So out of this response grew a organization called Burners Without Borders. And so for the past 10 years, it's mostly engaged in disaster relief efforts and also has empowered people in the Burning Man community who want to do their own social projects in their own home cities. So as of today, we have about 30 chapters across the states and other other places internationally where people facilitate their own social efforts. And that could range anything from uh, homeless outreach to cleanups to rebuilding homes. And a lot of it stems from the uh, 10 principles of Burning Man, which include such principles like uh, radical inclusion, leave no trace, communal effort, civic responsibility. And so taking taking some of these principles and applying them in in these type of contexts. And um, a year ago, um, Burners Without Borders became incorporated into the Burning Man project. And so now it's been transitioned in fully. And my role is a coordinator. And so I'm basically coordinating the efforts of our uh, of our community to whatever our community wants to engage in. We're not so much of a top-down, we're gonna tell you what we're doing organization. We, we listen a lot to what our community is passionate about and wants to respond to, and we try to cultivate that energy and facilitate a response to that. Now, you've, you've always had a big heart, you've always traveled the world, helped people, written about a lot of stuff. Um, I remember in college, you, know, you did international business, you, you traveled a lot. What did, what was the goal? You know, what did you want to be when you, you know, quote unquote, grew up? You know, has traveling the world, connecting people, has that always been something you've been interested in, or how? What was it that was the original spark? I had I had the privilege at a young age to to see other countries and um, and to see other ways of life. So when I was about fourteen and fifteen, I had traveled to Mexico. I traveled to the Caribbean. Um, that was my first exposure to shanty-like structures that were, um, and, and I guess to a degree, some poverty. And then I started doing volunteer student trips in high school. And uh, I really appreciated the community, I should say, rapport that was built between everybody that was in service and then to the people that were being served. This involved projects such as building school buildings, youth centers, um, helping uh, doing a youth camp in Eastern Europe and Romania. And that was all before I went to college. And so when I went into college, I knew that I wanted to be international. I knew that I wanted to help others. And so I didn't really know what that would look like. So I declared international business as a major. But um, at our university, uh, 
they require that all international business majors minored in culture anthropology. And when I discovered the discipline of culture anthropology, that opened a whole nother door to engaging deeper in the world, understanding the why of how cultures evolved, why, you know, why people, uh, you know, engage in the behaviors we, we do as humans and, and identifying more with the problems that exist in the planet. So uh, that took me on a deeper journey. And then every summer during my college years, I would go international and continue to further my uh, knowledge. And so one summer I went to Tibet and China. One summer I went to, uh, again, to the Caribbean and Mexico. And then I took a year off and I went to India. And um, all of these served as really deep learning experiences that furthered my worldview, deepened my worldview. And then through my professional career post-college, I've engaged in a number of different avenues to see what would fit the best. I had bouts of exploring the State Department, the Peace Corps. I worked at an international university, and I worked um, for a large humanitarian organization, World Vision. And I also have been independent as a writer to give me the freedom to just go to the places that I want to go to and engage in as a freelance uh, journalist. And now, most recently, I'm working for the Burning Man Project, which has a very large volunteer base across the world. And I'm now going to be leveraging the resources in that community towards social good. So you always knew traveling the world and seeing people and seeing their problems and figuring out how to solve them. And it seems like that's kind of been your focus. Do you remember one instance, maybe in Mexico, or you mentioned the shantytown, seeing how people live? Do you remember one specific instance where it really hit home and it was like, we need to do something about this. We as a culture, we as a society, we as the human race. Yes, there, there was a moment definitely where I basically knew that probably most of my career was going to be focused in the nonprofit world. It was when I was 21 years old. I was in Calcutta, India. I was with the trip that was serving with Mother Teresa's uh, mission, which is uh, she has a number of um, homes there that are available for those that are either disabled or orphans or those that are pretty close to uh, death. And instead of them dying on the streets, they can be taken into the uh, to their hospitals and then at least have a uh, a, a bit of a dignified passing um, with with love and care. So I had a moment there where um, I served with this French Franciscan priest named Brother Francis. He invited me to serve with him one day in in the city. So I went and I served with him one day. And in the morning, we went to the train station, uh, which train stations in India are quite the hubs. There's close to a million people that pass through a train station every day. So they're real hubs for people who want to uh, beg there and live there. You could always probably find some food there. So we went there and served the youth that were living there on their own. And then in the afternoons, we went to the city hospital. And uh, the city hospital, as opposed to Mother Teresa's clinics and hospitals, were uh, a pretty eye-opening experience for me. Going into the casualty ward where people have suffered heavy burns or um, 
issues there. I went in there with Brother Francis, and Brother Francis just wanted was going in there to just provide emotional support. And going in there was a uh, real was uh, very emotional for me because all the eyes of everybody was looking to me, and the eyes were just you know shouting out like help me. And uh, there was like no medicine in there. I only saw one nurse. There was like a couple bottles of saline solution. There was urine and blood and the floor and just it was just a pretty like horrendous situation. And so I had to step out of there and and uh, and and leave for you know get get my get my composure and then go back in. And we we kind of provided some support to a young 13 year old boy who was severely burned. And because there was not enough medical care available in the hospital, he died the next day. And, and I sort of had this experience like, okay, I grew up in the United States. I can have a part-time job while I go to college. I probably could make this amount of money. And this certain amount of money can actually help people in this part of the world like even though i'm just a student i i can do something like i can i can contribute a few hundred dollars to support education for students in a village or i can you know donate a certain amount of money to help uh, provide better medical uh, supplies in in this city in this hospital so that to me was like okay there's like real real life situations happening here on the other side of the world. I come from a very resourceful area. I know I can do something. So I sort of felt that in a way it was a bit of my my journey to just go and to take to be that sort of you know broker in between the resources of the United States and maybe other western countries and the you know some of the places in the world where there isn't a lot of resources. And just trying to facilitate that, however that looks. So, so yeah, that's that. That was uh, that was the moment for me that um, made me feel like I just can't personally work for myself after being exposed to this. Now I feel like I would, I would just want to. I really want to try to help others, and especially with the the world coming closer ever than before. I mean, I grew up in Silicon Valley in the '90s. I knew that the world was coming closer together already i saw it coming closer so it was just the future in my head and i was like we should we should try to learn to help each other more and and uh and be smart if we can with this type of uh these type of needs so yeah and it sounds like you're in the perfect role to do that now you're talking about mobilizing people and raising awareness and getting resources where they need to go it sounds like you're in the perfect role to do that now yeah definitely i mean my focus, I mean, I've been to close to 60 countries now, and I feel like it, it is a blessing. It's a privilege that's been given to me, and I don't take it lightly. And I want to take all that knowledge that I've acquired over the years and I've been in, intentional about to try to leverage it in, in more of a macro way. I mean, it is good to just serve with the type of mom-and-pop nonprofit and, like, help a certain group of people out and empower them and to give them the best lives they can live possible. But I feel like in my own world, I've been more geared towards working with organizations that have a large impact and a large influence. Rural Vision certainly was one. And then Visual News, who I wrote for, had about a 2 million reader um, monthly readership. And I was able to publish a lot of content on there 
that could expand people's horizons. And now the Burning Man community, we have like, you know, over a million followers on Facebook. We have a few hundred thousand on our email blast. And so any project that we do with Burns Without Borders can be published to the greater community about what's happening. And, um, and so that's, that's definitely um, motivating for me and, and to just throw different ideas to the greater uh, community. And the Burning Man community in general is very innovative, very uh, hardworking, has a very much of a uh, uh, collaborative and volunteer-minded type of uh, mindset. So it's a really like, it's a community that can be activated rapidly. People will like, will jump to the call if there was one, you know, so. So in that raising awareness, pushing content out, I mean, is that is that your basic day now? What's a basic day look like for you in your new role? Well, at the moment, the we are basically mobilizing all our resources together. We're going to be launching a new community activation platform uh, for all our chapters and our stakeholders for future projects. And we're really going to be, uh, you know, crafting more of like, formalizing some of our processes in moving forward uh, as Burning Man grows and as more social need comes up. So day to day, I'm, I'm basically engaging with our chapters. I'm basically really focused on getting a, a new community activation platform in place for us. Also, I'm part of you know, just the conversations that happen here at, uh, at Burning Man HQ. Most everyone in the office is focused on the event itself, mm -hmm. which is which is a huge undertaking. It's you know when you deal with seventy thousand people, a temporary city. It's called Black Rock City. You know all the all the logistics that's involved in that permitting, safety, and everything right. is uh, is uh, all part of that. So some of the projects I can just highlight really quick is like um, we created a makerspace container which is a shipping container that has a makerspace in it, has like a tool library, has a 3D printer, has a workshop. So it can be deployed out to uh, disaster relief situations or uh, also other temporary human settlements such as a refugee crisis somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we had one we brought out to Nepal. We have another one here in the Bay Area. So I'm working on um, like placing that because we need to move it this week. And then um, we just published our uh, winter newsletter and highlighting some of our other uh, topics. We we had a lot of burners that were interested to participate in the Standing Rock movement. Mm -hmm. So we, we explored it. We did an exploratory trip there. We talked to the tribal leadership there. They requested that compost toilets be provided. So we, we raised about $80,000 and then we built about 200 compost toilets oh, right wow. before the, win the winter kicked in, in at Standing Rock. Um, how long did that, that process another, take? Was, how long from getting the email that they want to do it to getting out there to getting the toilets actually installed? I would say it was probably, you know, we had a lot of interest um, probably around mid-September and mm -hmm. then we formed a, uh, we partnered with, another organization to create the protectors alliance this what it probably took about you know uh going to to standing rock and then afterwards probably two to four weeks of 
planning, mobilizing people and building out there. Yeah. And um, so probably I mean, that, from mid- Yeah, that's pretty fast. That's pretty nimble, you know? Yeah. So by, it was like by December 10th, we had all the, the compost toilets built out there. So Now, for people that haven't been to Burning Man or people that have the common misconception of it's a you know, bunch of naked people in the desert doing acid, uh, what would you say to those people that have those thoughts? How would you describe Burning Man from your experience? I mean, really, Burning Man is a different experience for each person who goes there. I could say for like my own journey there, um, I also had misconceptions about it before. I I, I thought it might have been a pagan festival. I thought it might have been, you know, a drug fest and all mm-hmm. that. But um some of my most creative and imaginative friends were going there and it sort of inspired me. I was like, what's happening out there? And it wasn't until about 2011 that I actually went. And a lot of the sentiments that I got before I went was, okay, it's going to change your life. Okay. It's going to change your life. And so, I mean, I heard that and, but I just put that on the side because I don't try to approach any new experience with a lot of expectation. Um, or, you know, preconceived notions, like whether I'm traveling or, or, uh, you know, going wherever. So, uh, I went there with an open mind and, uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, quite the experience. They, they say that describing Burning Man to people who haven't gone is like describing the color blue to a blind person. Hmm. And (laughs) it's kind of true, you know, because you have 70,000 people there in a participatory environment it's not a festival. There's no money exchange there. You have to take all your stuff out, all your trash, all your gray water, everything. So it's not like you're going to this festival like Coachella where everything's provided for you. You're mm-hmm. just going to have a good time and, and you know, who cares? I mean, um, you are, you're expected to bring something to the table, you know, whatever that is. I mean, so when you got 70,000 people doing that, it's quite quite the environment and um and also you have an ex- you have an environment where there's just a lot not of judgment nobody cares what you wear what you say how you talk what you do because part of the principle is radical self-expression so embracing whatever you want to be or how you want to express yourself so um, it's really a kind of big breath of fresh air to be part of an environment where no one's asking you, what do you do for work? What are you doing? Like, right. how are you? And, and kind of, you know, putting you in a box, you know, at the same time, you're just going to have endless experiences that you've never had in your life. And they're probably going to be inspiring to you and they're going to expand your own personal journey um, in creativity, uh, in your work life, uh, innovation. And so, um, I've been going every year now for six years, and uh, it's definitely been part of a. Uh, it's definitely um, expanded my 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 perspective on the world and what's possible. And uh, I always meet just amazing people there every year, and I'm really happy to be able to work for the organization full time now, facilitating the culture, especially as it gets more global now. At this point in time, it's just had its 30th year last year. So, oh wow. So being in the Bay Area, dealing with poverty and homelessness, you know, we can't talk about that without talking about the economic situation in the Bay Area. Um, You know, the cost of living, housing prices, rent prices, and I mean, it's a function of supply and demand, but 
you also have to have space for the support for the metropolis, for the nurses and the firefighters and the teachers to be able to live there and service the community. You know, in your opinion, how how do we solve these problems? How does a community come together to rally, not necessarily against the forces of supply and demand in the free market, but in a way that allows a city to not destroy itself? Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty loaded question, and it's it is it's complicated in especially when you're you're dealing with San Francisco and where it's at right now. I mean, San Francisco is in a boom right now. And so when it's in a boom, there's just sometimes the people who are on the lower income scale are going to be neglected. Their needs are going to be neglected. And, and the boom's been happening now for a few years. And, and it's just the part of the evolution of the city. Part of the solution is that the local uh, government really needs to allot a certain amount of of resources to uh, either affordable housing or to supporting local arts, supporting all the people who come and service the city, uh, allowing them to stay here. And um, but it it's complicated when everybody wants to move here, everybody wants to start their company here. To me, it was something that was always bound to happen because if you got into tech in the 90s and you grew up in that area, you knew that it was just going to continue. The internet was not going to stop and there was going to continue to be like more apps, more, uh, more companies, more products that would be evolve. And now me growing up, like I grew up near Palo Alto, nobody really knew what Paul, who, where Palo Alto was when I was growing up. Now, almost everybody I talk to knows about Palo Alto. And, you know, you got Facebook that's like right next door, Menlo Park, and you got Google next door and Mountain View. And, and now if you're an entrep- tech entrepreneur anywhere in the world, like you basically know that your best chance of succeeding in with your company, whatever it is, is to get to the Valley and SF because it's the largest – it's the largest pool of venture capital money anywhere in the world. And you and also combined with tech talent and, um, you know, incubator spaces, resources, everything you need. So maybe back in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was only so many. And But what I'm noticing these days in San Francisco is that there is so much more international companies, a much more international population. So... All I'm saying is that basically, I my opinion is that whoever comes to San Francisco, I I believe you know, they they're welcome and they should be welcomed. I would just encourage what I would like to encourage personally is that whoever does come to the city is uh, giving back somehow. So I mean, if you are a tech entrepreneur, you maybe are giving certain amount to this nonprofit arts you know, organization, right. or you're supporting this uh, affordable housing organization or whatever. So I would like to try to encourage that in my own journey, actually, with just, with just supporting uh, that type of mindset. But, you know, to answer your question, it's pretty, it's, pre- it's pretty complicated, and already a lot of people have left the city. They've moved to the East Bay. They're moving out, and um, we might not see a balance kick in until the bubble bursts again. Right. 
What would you say has been your biggest triumph so far? You know, either personally, projects you've worked on, or professionally. You know, what's something you're really proud about? I, I'd say there's there's a couple things definitely. Um, one thing I was proud about was when I worked with World Vision. I worked specifically with an experiential exhibit that that uh, focused on the issue of uh, HIV AIDS and in particular the effect it still has on the sub-Saharan African region. So this was an exhibit that traveled to uh, a number of universities, churches, other event spaces, and I toured with it for about three years. I went to about 60 stops. Every stop would have about three to 4,000 attendees and local media. So we had a large impact on raising awareness and also bringing a call to action in the form of sponsorship to communities all over the United States. Some communities that are quite in rural areas, you know, and mm-hmm. don't have a lot of exposure to any international issues, uh, let alone what they read in the local newspaper or on uh, on the media. So I really um, feel like all the awareness that our organization was able to raise brought a lot of help to those affected by AIDS in, in Africa, because mm-hmm. we, we raised about, you know, probably... 30, 40,000 child sponsorships, which all support the communities out there. And that right. was great. But I'd like to think also that some of the exposure to the AIDS issue also brought about the change we're seeing in the whole AIDS issue now, which is like there is a potential um, you know, vaccine being right. developed. It's already worked for, um, for mice and monkeys, and it's had going through human trials now seems to be working so that's that's a big win in my opinion that we can actually put a lid a bit on the on the hiv aids issue and the other other win i would say that i'm i'm proud of and i'm still involved in as i mentioned brother francis earlier Mm -hmm. well he him and i kept in touch even though we only served together for one day we kept in touch uh, through the years and i would continue to support his organization and his work and he he was just exploring the idea of living in India at that time, being a priest from France in Paris. He actually found it to be his life calling to go in lurk full time in the train station wow. with with the youth and the families that live there. So he has been working there full time, and uh, I was able to um, serve with him again in uh, 2014. And when I went there to visit him, he didn't have the best classroom available for bringing education to the boys that were living there. So I sort of uh, facilitated a, uh, a better classroom facility and raised some funds and got some volunteers. And we, ra- we, got, we brought laptops and tablets and tablet-based education, and we rented another classroom to basically create a uh, – a bit of an interdisciplinary curriculum based on each individual student, you know, so because they don't want to go to the local schools because they'll get abused there and they 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 don't know how to read and write yet at their age, whether a teenager or they're 18. So you kind of have to meet them where they're at and see where they're skilled at and then, you know, hone those skills. So I was happy to bring that project to Calcutta and then that project's still going on. 
and I still am keeping a lot of touch with all those boys out there. And, awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, so awesome. How about any disappointments that you faced? Disappointments. Or anything you wish would have gone differently. I mean, I've I've always tried to to live my life, you know, um, with a real, you know, intention of of just making it the best life I can possible. I'd say I'm pretty happy with with the direction I've chosen. I I sort of was influenced just by my my grandma who lived to 103. She was um, some of her strongest memories that she talked to me growing up were were her memories and her youth, her memories when she was a 20 something. And so I figured my philosophy was that I'm going to try to make the most amazing memories I can in my 20s so that I could just laugh about it and like, you know, remember it like when I'm 80 something or 90 something if I live that long. I can't say that I'm I'm regretful, you know, or disappointed of of the path I've chosen. It's um it's if it hasn't had a monetary benefit, it's had a huge like knowledge benefit. Right. And right. and so that's and too many why, people like, discount that for sure. Right. You know, and so I figured I could jump into a job right after college and I could do that, but I I chose to get to all the places uh, I can to have a better perspective on the world. So, you know, I've been to places uh, of all the major religions. I spent time in Egypt and India and Israel. I spent time in uh, Tibet and I've experienced like all the major world religions. And then I've also experienced communist states, former communist states. And then on the horizon, I'd like to really experience, um, you know, more of Africa and, uh, you know, South America would be great too. But, um, but I'm going to not travel for a while now. So, uh, I, I don't know, like, I'm pretty happy with the way life has gone. And, um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just thankful and I'm just trying to, yeah, just continue to be, uh, service uh, in this time in human history which i think is pretty much one of the most fascinating times we're living in at the moment oh definitely definitely the way we you mentioned you know being insulated from exposure to the outside world or you know be it geographically or be it what we see on facebook we can only see the things that we want to see and we can only reinforce our our own misconceptions or previously held beliefs um doing that work of showing people love and educating others about what's going on in the real world. I think it's definitely, definitely a very um, worthwhile task and uh, worthy of people's attention. So people that say they've got a yearning in their heart, they want to help, they don't know how to help, they don't know how to get involved, they don't know which organization is trustworthy or how to, how to start doing something. What's your advice for those folks that they don't know what to do, but they know they want to do something? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that First, you really need to think about what what area of focus you know you want to help in, whether that's health or education, or you want to help with uh, you know bringing food and water, whatever it is. Uh, really think about what you want to help in, and then think about how you can contribute and what skills you have to really contribute effectively to that situation. 
then I would recommend looking at a number of volunteer organizations that are out there. And uh, one website I, I like to go to that has a wealth of volunteer opportunities is called idealist.org. And that's a great place to just filter search your areas that you want to serve in and check out the opportunities there. I always tell people that you shouldn't really go for those volunteer opportunities where they're like, okay, we want to charge you $4,000 to go on this 10 day trip to, you know, help build a house here in Guatemala or something, right. because it's just super overpriced. Maybe for the certain types of people, that's what they only have time for is to just, have a catered trip sort of like that. Mm -hmm. But it, in my opinion, it's super uh, overpriced and it's really not that difficult to just manage your own travel logistics. You just have to get over the fear of, uh, of engaging in another country right. that is, um, you know, operating in another language, operating another system. But with phones today and apps, it's so easy to, you know, get service, um, you know, even with some a service like T-Mobile, you get, you know, 3G in like 180 countries automatically. You can have uh, translator apps, you can have GPS, and it's just traveling is so much more easier than it was like 15 years ago. So it's like, to me, there's like no excuse how you can, you can navigate another, in another uh, country. Yeah, but I mean, I would check out those those volunteer opportunities depending on what you want to do. And I also recommend people to not just focus on the global, but also to just look locally also where they're at. I think it's important that each person not only serves in a global capacity, but also in a real local capacity mm -hmm. also. So Major difference in your community, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think a lot of people want to get involved, but not only do they not know how to, but they're afraid to. You know, they're it's it's uncomfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable going to a place where you don't speak the language, don't know anybody. You know, all we see on the news is people getting mugged and kidnapped and all this stuff. I mean, you've traveled the world. You've, like you said, you've seen every religion, every kind of people. You know, for those folks that are afraid, you know, of getting out of their comfort zone and what they might find, what would you say to those folks? It is a bit challenging in the beginning to definitely uh, to to step out of your own comfort zone and to step into a new world. Um, it can also be daunting if you're female and you're stepping into a, uh, a heavily male-dominated society or country. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are a lot of resources out there to prepare you um, for what can be described as culture shock. And you can be prepared for it, but ultimately, it's you taking that leap of faith is is going to be so much more rewarding in your own life when you do it. And when you do it, you kind of have this epiphany that, hey, we're all human beings on this planet. We all have mothers and fathers. We all have people that raised us. We all are trying to make a living. We're all trying to watch over the well-being of ourselves and our children, and we all die. And in meeting in meeting each other in that type of space and identifying with our similarities rather than our differences and engaging with a new person with a, a type of condition, type of mistrust, however that is, whether it was fed to us by 
the media or by our parents or by our government or whoever. It's it's about breaking that box and rejecting it and then really thinking for yourself and experiencing for yourself, uh, you know, how, you know, uh, how the world really is. And so, I mean, I think it's super important to help others and it's great, but it's also really good to just to engage in cultural exchange and to just, you know, have that serve you on your own journey. And um, for those I would say that are, are afraid to do it solo, then do it with a partner, do it with some friends, do it in a, in a, in an organized group. Everybody has their own flow and their own way of how they would like to move around. Some people are better in a group. Some people are better solo. So, but uh, really, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in the United States, I mean, your first step really is to get a U.S. passport. Mm -hmm. It's not very difficult to do. Um, you get that, and that's your ticket to the world. From there, as a U.S. citizen, you have the privilege to basically travel to every single country in this world, which is a huge privilege that a lot of other citizens of other countries do not have and do not have the financial resources to do so either. And I especially think it's important as we move into uh, into this next chapter of the United States that uh, us as citizens are uh, internationally informed. So I encourage everyone to just step out of their own boundaries as they see fit. And I guarantee you it's going to change your life and, uh, and it's going to reward you um, in ways you probably could not have foreseen. Wow. Those are, those are some great words, Sean. Uh, wow. So going forward, how do you remain motivated, you know, in light of all the trauma and plight that you've seen and knowing that, you know, everyone is just one person. There's so many, there's only so many problems you can solve yourself. How do you stay motivated and keep going? I have gone through some phases where I wasn't motivated and I got tired of giving, I got tired of, uh, of helping and, um, but I feel like what motivates me is um, the reality that I know that there's a lot of people in the world who just haven't been shown love. Um, they've gone through tough situations. We have people in Syria that have lost their families, everything. have lost everything. Yeah. And, now, and now they're in countries where people don't want them there, you know, the the refugees that are in Greece, like the Greek government doesn't want them there. Nobody wants to deal with them. Nobody, everybody wants to put them, you know, behind under the carpet. And I, I try to think to myself, what if I was that? What if I was in that situation? Right. What if I was in a situation where there was a civil war, there was a disaster? I have lost everything. You know, I would want to be taken care of or at least be, provided for if I could until I could get on my own feet again, you know, whether that's emotionally, physically, and there's people right now on the, on the world, as we're having this podcast that are going through that right now. And, um, and there's not enough attention, uh, brought to it. And maybe there never will be enough tension, but these type of situations are always going to happen. And that's what motivates me. Right. We are still going to have huge migrations in the future. We are still going to have disasters. There's still going to be 
suffering. It's just part of life here. And I feel like personally for me, I've been given a lot of love. I've been given a lot of uh, resources and I'm thankful for it. And I feel like I can be best utilized by bringing that love and those resources to those that are, you know, currently not experiencing that. And, uh, and I really feel that is changing the world. It doesn't mm -hmm. need to be some big, big project that, you know, we brought 20,000 wells here and we're bringing clean water and everything. It could be, it's just the simple. And it's something I feel like I learned serving with the Mother Teresa sisters and Mother Teresa's philosophy herself was it's just in the simple. It's just in the touch, in the smile, in the eye contact, in just letting somebody know that you are there for them. Um, and it's a practice that I try to, I try to apply in my life in the daily. It can be difficult for me. It's difficult probably for everybody, you know, especially when we're dealing with our own problems and everything. But, um, but knowing that, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, uh, who need help and that, that motivates me. And it, it, it basically defines the purpose and journey I've chosen in life. Yeah, you don't have to solve a country's problems or a society's problems or a culture's problems. You can start by solving a person's problem or a family's problem. Start there and, you know, see see where it goes from there. Right. And and that's really the important thing that sometimes uh, people that work for non-government organizations and nonprofits sometimes forget is you have to ask what the people you are serving, what they need. You know, right. you might think you might think that they need you know, ABC solution, but really it it's nothing compared to what they needed. They you know they're like, no, we're fine with that. We actually needed this. Yeah. And it's, it's taking those steps to really just, you know, ask the questions. And I think that's a good approach and model in general for any future uh, social work is just to identify first what the community or what people need and want. And then like, you know, try to try to meet people there try to figure out something if you could go back to the start of your journey anything you tell yourself try to live your life um as fully as you can and uh and and have fun along the way and laugh and uh and you know um get to know yourself treat others with kindness and uh and uh love and forgive others and keep moving, just keep moving. That's probably what I'd say. And probably don't overthink things too much. And just have a good time along the way. And yeah, that's probably what I would say. That's some great words of advice. Awesome, Sean. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, your huge heart for humanity is inspiring. And it's great to hear, especially in this divisive time we're facing as in not only a nation, but also a species, I think, as we're becoming more insular. Um, hearing about love and solving each other's problems and meeting people's needs where they're at. It's, it's definitely inspiring to me. Thanks for having me on the show, Brett. Um, so you can find out more about Burners Without Borders at burnerswithoutborders.org. If you're interested in going to Burning Man, you can go to burningman.org. There's a first-timer's guide. Uh, there's a list of things you might want to do, might want to bring, and uh, again, the 10 principles Sean talked about. And again, as Sean was mentioning, if you want to find a way to get involved, want to find an organization you can trust, a good place to start, is idealist.org. Sean can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Salemi. 
This has been the Maslow Peak Podcast presented by Spring State Media Group. Our producer is Jesse Edmond. You can find us on the web at themaslowpeak.com and you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play Music, or SoundCloud. We're on Twitter and Instagram at the Maslow Peak. And you can also find us on Facebook for some questions, answers, behind-the-scenes content, and um, all kinds of good stuff. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you guys soon.